first in a series of trainings that um, several of us have been working with uh, DMH and UCLA to present on working with AAPIs. Um, and I'm honored to be the first speaker. And as I told Aya the other day, very nervous. So bear with me. Uh, the title of our discussion today is the need for AAPI historical empathy. Um, I also want to uh, identify myself as being an Asian American who is uh, Chinese and Japanese, born in Japan and a naturalized citizen, even though my father was a citizen. And we'll get into some of that as we discuss the legislation. Um, I also wanna be very clear, I'm not a historian. I'm not a teacher or professor. I'm a person who has had a great interest in AAPI history since my high school days and uh, have sort of kept in touch with things as they've developed. We're gonna start off with just a quick definition of AAPIs, and then we're gonna do a quick overview of the legislation and historical events. And then we'll go into a deeper dive and really examine four specific things that have happened and how they have impacted, I think, the psyche of Asian Americans in the United States. Then we'll have a break, because I really believe in self-care. Uh, and then we'll have, I hope, a, a really lively discussion on what we've learned and uh, really what is historical empathy and how you can apply what you've learned. And then we'll take a real life example because we're gonna examine how the COVID has continued this anti-AAPI hate and some of the legislation that's come out of it. And then we'll have closing remarks. So with that, um, we can just start with the first slide. Uh, oh, you know, the other thing I wanted to say is this. You're gonna have two handouts. One is a shortened version of the history. So you don't have to take a lot of notes. And the other is that I really would ask that you take in the legislation and, and feel, pay attention to how they are making you feel. Um, you might have reactions to some of the legislation that has been passed in, in even 150 years ago. And also you will notice that almost all the legislation is focused on the Chinese. It just happens to be that was the time when there was so much of it, but be rest assured, unfortunately, it has been applied evenly to all Asians. So uh, it's just a you know, because we're doing a historical perspective of anti-Asian legislation, that's why there is such a focus on Chinese. And I have a handout, which is some resources. And in it, I try to include resources on other uh, ethnic groups like Filipino um, and South uh, Asian. So hopefully that will be helpful. All right. Um, who and what are AAPIs? And for those of you, sometimes I, I forget, I just assume everybody knows, but AAPI stands for Asian American Pacific Islanders. Uh, the Los Angeles AFA um, uh, helped me put together the definitions of AAPIs. And you can see they actually are divided up geographically and there are certain groups that you would not automatically think of as being Asians, but they're actually classified as such, such as when you look at the Central Asians, and of course at the bottom, you'll see the West Asians. So uh, that is still a somewhat um, undetermined, but pretty much uh, East Asians, uh, Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders, Southeast Asians and South Asians, are very much considered uh, AAPIs. All right, so over the decades and centuries, we have grown in size. We're now 222.9 million throughout the United States. And this represents 50 ethnic groups and 100 different languages. 
Many people think that the A Asians started in the 1800s, but actually we have found records of immigrants from China, the Philippines, and India as far back as the 1500s. It's really when the Asians, particularly the Chinese, became an economic threat that we start seeing the anti-immigration legislation. So as you can see, the first Japanese immigrant arrived in May of 1843. And because of the gold rush, we had by 1851 over 25,000 Chinese. Many of them were working in the, the gold mining fields, but also, uh, as we'll discover later, the Transcontinental Railroad brought in a large number in 1869. And not, unfortunately, uh, what was common is that uh, Asians were paid less and they were often asked to do the most dangerous work. And I think that continues for us to this day and also to many of our uh, other uh, minorities in the United States. So here's just a quick rundown on some of the key legislation. Uh, as I noted before, they are and have been applied against all Asians over time. And um, the first was 1852 with the foreign miners tax, $3 a month. And this was to target the miners. And by 1870, it was amazing. They had paid in over $5 million to California. And one of the themes you're gonna see is that a lot of the anti-Asian legislation actually uh, originates from uh, Congress people or legislators in California. In 1854, there was a Supreme Court case, People versus Hall. And you'll note that the Chinese, like African-Americans and Native Americans, were not allowed to testify in court. So as you'll see, as we look at the history, there were many instances of massacres and Chinese immigrants were not allowed to ever testify against a white person. Uh, there's the Burlingame, Burlingame Treaty which permitted free immigration of the Chinese, but did not give them any rights for naturalization. Uh, and then uh, in 1871, uh, actually there was California legislation that prohibited corporations from employing any Asian. Uh, that was nullified actually because white businesses needed the labor. And I think that probably resonates with a lot of our agricultural workers from uh, Mexico, Central America, and South America. We will deal in more depth with the Page Act, the Gary Act, and the Magnuson Act. And just as a sort of <clears throat> positive note, we some of the, the laws were repealed against Asians in 1952. So <clears throat> I don't know if this is a phrase that's familiar to any of you, um, but when I was growing up, I oftentimes heard the phrase, oh, you don't have a Chinaman's chance. And it wasn't until I started looking at our history that I began to realize uh, it wasn't just a cruel phrase. It actually was such a reality because you can see by these ordinances how discriminatory the laws were. And they were very much geared towards making sure that uh, Chinese, that was the main group then, Chinese didn't have a chance to really make a decent living. So they were, you know, constantly being regulated. So you had a cubic air ordinance, you had a sidewalk ordinance. Uh, and when I say the use of poles, that's what they traditionally carry their bundles on. There was a, a queue ordinance, which meant that many of the Chinese who came with their queues um, were supposed to cut them off. And uh, if not, uh, they were put in jail. But worse than that, that really made it very difficult for them to return home. And then a series of laundry ordinances. So at the time, um, the Chinese, and you know, it's kind of interesting. We, when I think of all the Asian populations that have moved here in waves, uh, you'll see that certain groups start gravitating towards certain professions. 
So the Chinese were in mining agriculture, but they also made it very successful for them to, they, they were very successful, I should say, in terms of starting laundries. Uh, and uh, we see that happening with the Cambodians, with their donut shops, Vietnamese nail salons. Uh, we each as a culture start to find ways to connect with our folks and help each other, but also uh, sort of, you know, become successful in a particular field. And uh, on the positive side, uh, most of these laws were uh, repealed, except for the sidewalk ordinance. And uh, we'll go later into the lawsuit of the Yikwo Laundry. But, um, you know, he was able to pursue a lawsuit that established a very important principle, and that is that a law is discriminatory, even if its wording is not discriminatory, if it is applied in a discriminatory manner. But that was quite a mouthful. Uh, in 1854, there was a, a lawsuit, People versus Hall. And in this, the US Supreme Court ruled that a Chinese man's witness or testimony regarding the murder of a Chinese minor by a white person was not allowed because the Chinese were a race of people whom nature has marked as inferior. Can you imagine that is what a Supreme Court justice is um, determining his opinion on? And this had um, a very serious impact, of course, because that meant that Chinese uh, testimonies in other situations were not respected. And you will see that happening over and over again, even to this day, that um, what happens to Asians uh, and their testimony is not as highly regarded quite often as that of a white person. And I, I also want to say that I, I hope I don't sound uh, anti-white. Uh, it just so happens that the legislation was pretty much geared towards uh, the mainstream people at the time. And I think that's part of how we're going to develop some historical empathy uh, because that's a two-way street. So I, here's a, a list of some of the more famous anti-AAPI massacres and murders. It's quite shocking uh, to see how many uh, Chinese were uh, attacked, their homes burned, their businesses burned, lynchings, and so forth. And it all came from a point of view that they were uh, inferior people, that they were robbing uh, Americans of their jobs um, and that they spread disease. So if this is starting to feel familiar with COVID, you're right. Um, the most famous uh, massacre that we're, we may have heard of is the Chinatown massacre in Los Angeles, right here in our city of angels. And this year is the 150th anniversary of that massacre. Uh, it was a very sad situation. Again, it's hard to figure out the facts, but you can go online and, and do some research about what happened. They burned down the whole Chinatown. They killed a lot of people, but for certain they, they uh, tortured and lynched approximately 18 to 19 people. And one of them was a 14-year-old boy, and the other was a Chinese doctor. Uh, the, the, the mob mentality did not uh, discriminate, uh, you know, age uh, or profession. It was just, unfortunately, like many mob reactions, uh, a reaction. Uh, apparently, it started over a fight between two Chinese groups over a woman, although that is contested because as they've looked into it, they found more and more that maybe it was a grab of, of greed. In other words, the, um, there was a businessman, a saloon owner at the time, and he and a policeman were interested in collecting money from the Chinese businesses, and that kind of sparked the fight. But in the process of resisting a um, 
policeman was shot and killed and that set off the mob. Um, so anyway, we're gonna talk in more detail about the executive order 966, as well as the murder of Vincent Shin. So I won't go into that, but I do feel that it's important to note even now how many uh, incidences there are. And that when we look at what's been happening under the pandemic, that from March, 2020 to March, 2021, on the Stop, Stop AAPI Hate website, over 9,000 incidences have been reported. And we can be rest assured that that's not all the incidences. Those are just the ones that are reported. So here are some examples of the, the massacres that occurred. And you can see most of them are on the West Coast because that's where the Chinese came. Uh, for the gold mining and agriculture, uh, and um, then later working on the railroad. And uh, as you can imagine, the Chinese were not allowed to have uh, weapons, although they probably had some. But uh, Tacoma, it, it's sad because um, once their um, businesses and homes were burned down, um, and they all had to leave. Uh, to this day, the Chinatown in Tacoma has not been rebuilt. And then you can see on the left, the uh, Chinese massacre of 1871, the, the one that took uh, place here in Los Angeles. And um, a theme that I, I want us to pay attention to is you'll notice, afterwards, the grand jury accused two dozen men of murder. 10 were tried and eight were convicted of manslaughter. All eight had their convictions overturned on a technicality with no retrial. And the reason why I wanna share that with you is when we talk about Vincent Chin and the murder of Vincent Chin, you are gonna see the same theme coming up. The Watsonville riots in 1930 was aimed at the Filipino immigrants. We don't have a lot of history on, on Filipinos uh, in terms of the anti-legislation, but uh, what you see is a group of white farm workers feeling threatened by the Filipino immigrants who were coming and working in the fields. And um, one of the things we're gonna talk about later actually is the lack of women. So the Filipino men would oftentimes go to dance halls and uh, you know, for pay, they could dance with white women. And of course that raised a lot of issues uh, with the mainstream culture. And uh, as a result, we, we saw this particular riot and actually the shooting of a, a, a gentleman. Pacific Islanders and Hawaiians, it's part of our group. And we don't really think about it that much, but how did we get Hawaii? Well, we got Hawaii by basically seizing their lands. They, they had a culture, they, they had a monarchy, they had a government, um, but the queen at the time was uh, overthrown by a coalition of American businessmen led by Sanford Dole, yes, Dole, the pineapple uh, corporation as we know, knew it for many years. And then it was annexed in 1898 and became a state in 1959. But the Hawaiian peoples were never compensated for the seizure of their lands and they were never recognized as a separate nation. So when we think of Hawaii as a place to go on vacation, it's beautiful, the climate, the gorgeous sunsets. There's a lot of tragedy there and the fate of the indigenous people is only now starting to be fully recognized and their rights starting to be reestablished, their languages being reestablished and so forth. But um, I did not have time to go through all of the um, islands, uh, but they're very complicated relationships with Samoa, Tonga, et cetera, Micronesian islands. And these are all part of our Pacific Islanders, brothers and sisters. 
So one of the things I just want us to take a pause and think about is Asian American history is American history. And I, I would be curious to know how many of you felt that you got any um, education when you were going through elementary school or high school or even college about uh, Asians and, and their history in the uh, United States. Um, you know, we have to really work hard to make sure that we find out the truth. And history is very dependent on who's writing it. So we have to be careful not to accept what is presented. Yeah, I think it's really important that one of the um, things I offer as a solution, as do many other uh, folks, that it's important to have th these like Asian American studies, but also black history studies, departments in our colleges that really focus on our histories because it's all part of American history and not having it is, is, gives us blind spots. I can't tell you the number of my friends who are not Asian, who've never heard of the uh, internment camps, uh, don't know anything about what happened with the Transcontinental Railroad. Um, they just you know, have kind of a narrow picture of the move out West and so forth. And you know, American history is, is rich and not all of it is terrible, and, but we still have to be open to what we have done. So um, on a more positive note, I do want to make note that uh, Asians were not just taking this lying down. They challenged and they appealed, they fought. And some of the results we see in 2021 uh, through the efforts of Asian Americans uh, President Biden did sign executive orders against racism uh, after the attacks on Asian Americans. And in this year, the California government under Governor Newsom has allocated $156 million in its budget for API equity in order to combat anti-AAPI hate. It's divided up into three years but the first round of granting is actually starting um, this month. So just to let you know that, you know, it, it doesn't, you got to keep fighting. I guess that's the best way. To so this is the Yik Wo versus Hopkins uh, piece of legislation and um, how uh, the Chinese laundries were denied permits. Uh, and then he, he actually fought his case all the way to the Supreme Court and won. And I, I mentioned, uh, earlier about the equal protection arguments, which come under the 14th Amendment. So an interesting uh, photo of his um, laundry. Here are some other examples. I won't go into great detail uh, about them, but uh, again, to show you the fights that uh, occurred, I call them fights, uh, appeals that occurred. I thought this one was particularly interesting uh, because uh, it, ch it challenges the assumption that no person could hold U.S. citizenship. And uh, the Supreme Court did rule under the 14th Amendment that there is birthright citizenship to any person born in the United States, regardless of race or the status of their parents. This was really important because it established the rights of uh legal standing in the United States. And um, we can talk about this later, but I just wanted to make note that this was something that was actually challenged under Trump's administration, the right of anyone who was born in the United States to be a US citizen. And on the other hand, you know, we need to look at the fact that we had in San Gabriel, homes where women from China came to give birth in the United States so that their child would have U.S. citizenship. Um, and I remember when I was a, a young child, I was born after World War II. My mother was a Japanese war bride. My father was Chinese. He was a U.S. citizen. And at that time, I was not recognized as a citizen uh, and had to be naturalized when I finally was allowed to come into the United States with the rest of my family. Um, Ozawa versus United States. Um, 
interestingly enough, again, it had to do with naturalization and the uh, judgment was Japanese were not free white persons, so uh, they didn't have those rights for naturalization. Bagat Singh Bin, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I apologize in advance. Um, you know, we have a, a lot of South Asians in the United States with quite a history. And uh, again, the legislation didn't really single them out as they did the Chinese, but um, I thought, you know, this was particularly poignant because uh, when you think about it, being Aryan, well, Northern India is the home of Aryan conquerors. I never really understood that or, or knew that, but he questioned their ineligibility for naturalized citizenship and the court ruled that people of Indian descent were not white. So therefore they weren't eligible for naturalization. So again, you can see how this legislation which was targeted against the Chinese in the early 1850s on was being applied to all Asians. Um, this had to do with classification in order to get a decent education when you see Lum versus Rice. Uh, Korematsu, we'll, we won't go into this in detail, but we will talk a lot about the Executive Order 966 and how it, you know, impacted our Japanese American citizens. Um, Lao versus Nichols, again, uh, you know, discriminating against the rights of our children for a proper education. All right, so now we're gonna do a deep dive. And I thought we would start off with women's rights. <laughs> um, the Page Act of 1875, I wanna thank Busala Akinwale for her research on this. So uh, President Grant in 1875 signed a statute that restricted immigration. But when you read it more closely, it is very targeted against Chinese women. Um, from the very beginning in, 18, in the 1850s, Chinese immigrants in general were classified as uncivilized, unclean, filthy beyond all conception, lustful and sensual in their dispositions, Every female is a prostitute and of the basis order. So um, the law states any, uh, any person from an oriental country uh, could not enter for lewd and immoral purposes and effectively it banned nearly all Chinese women because again, the assumption that any woman coming to the United States of Chinese descent was a prostitute. Um, really it was a way to uh, stop immigration and, and settlements uh, of, the, of the Chinese men, but it had this impact on Chinese women. They, they couldn't board ships unless they could prove that they were respectable. They had quite a process to go through in order to show that they were respectable. So it continues today. And, and the reason why I wanna bring this up is, um, in 2020, we had 149% increase in anti-Asian hate crimes. And they really began to spike in March and April um, due to the spread of the pandemic. But AAPI women are victimized in these hate incidences at double the rate. Actually, I was at a workshop yesterday and it's uh, three times the rate as men. And of course, the March 16th incident where a gunman killed eight people, of which six were women of Asian descent. And um, they were in spas and massage parlors. But according to law enforcement, the shooter was a self-described sex addict who was motivated by desire to eliminate the temptation posed by the businesses. That's very much, I think, targeted against Asian women. Now this Page Act was finally repealed in 1974, but it has not stopped the discriminatory treatment of Asian women. Uh, one sad thing that happened uh, during the 1850s into the 1900s was because um, 
Asian women were not allowed into the United States. We had a lot of men who were never able to, to start a family. And I remember growing up in San Francisco, going to Chinatown, and there, there's a park in the middle of Chinatown. And you would see all these elderly Chinese men sitting there playing chess or doing Tai Chi. And none of them were married because they came during a time period when they weren't allowed to bring their families, their wives, or to bring women of marriageable age. And it, it's, it's so sad. And, and you saw that in the uh, Tacoma riots with the Filipino men. They weren't allowed to bring any women over for a long time. And so you see the isolation that's created for our Asian men. I think that's such a sad story. So when I say uh, it continues, I think we need to look historically at how Asian women are viewed. And I tried to list some of the images, prostitute, of course, but geisha, Madam Butterfly, China doll. We're seen as submissive, passive, quiet, mysterious, exotic. Uh, and there are some myths. We make better wives. We're not bossy. I think that is probably the biggest myth that we're not bossy. Ask my husbands. Um, and then um, on a more serious note, of course, the sexual enslavement of Asian women continues. And you'll see on the left-hand side how um, the trafficking of Asian women and girls, and because really there were young uh, girls from age 10 on up, were trafficked and sold in auctions in the 1860s and 1870s in San Francisco. And they were brought on to be maids, but they were also forced into the sexual uh, enslavement. And when you look at what happened, even in the massacres, the burning of the Chinatowns, uh, they don't really count the number of possible Asian women who were killed they pretty much only count the men, but there were quite a number who probably lost their lives. So the, the women who were brought over for sexual purposes, very few of them survived more than five or six years of enslavement. But there are some really uh, nice history uh, books on uh, women who were able to escape. So what's sad is to this day, around 14,500 to 17,500 foreign nationals from Southeast Asia and Central America are trafficked into the United States each year. And I know Thai CDC and uh, a collaborative of API organizations have been working on um, sexual and human trafficking uh, under a Department of Justice grant a few years ago. Um, most of it focused on Thai um, workers, but also there was a big um, Thai ring that was uh, discovered and covered several states, and it involved hundreds of Thai women brought over to, uh, to be sexually trafficked. And again, I want to point out the uh, March 16th situation uh, where obviously Asian women were targeted. Let me take a break and see if um, people wanna share any feelings, uh, reactions about um, the fetish, I can never say that, fetishization of Asian women and how the legislation really emphasized that and created this image of us. I wanna share that when uh, my mother married my father in Japan right after World War II. He was part of the U.S. Armed Forces that occupied Japan. And um, he was one of the men who wasn't able to marry an Asian woman in the United States because there weren't any. So uh, one of the first things he wanted to do when he was you know, in Japan was to seek a wife, which he found my mother. At the time, they, they married um, a civil ceremony. They were not recognized as being married by the U.S. government. And uh, I found some documentation about the questioning that my mother had to undergo in order to prove that she was not a prostitute. 
She was 18 years old, uh, was working as a bookkeeper, which is how she met my dad. Um, she had me and she, uh, then they shipped my dad off to Korea, hoping to break up the family unit. He insisted on coming back to Japan. And then my brother was born. And after, you know, four years, um, we were allowed to uh, go back with him to the United States. All right. So um, let's talk a little bit about the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, because it really uh, set the stage for uh, a whole series of legislation that followed and an attitude towards uh, Asians. So this act was passed by uh, President Arthur and it provided a 10 year moratorium on Chinese labor. Um, it was the first time a federal law prescribed an ethnic working group uh, as not being allowed in because it endangered the good order of certain localities. And it was very difficult to obtain certification from the Chinese government, first of all, to qualify to immigrate, but then um, it, it became so difficult that after a certain point, few Chinese could even come into the United States. But it also um, placed this requirement on Chinese who were here, if they left, they had to uh, obtain recertification in order to come back. And it also enforced that state and federal courts would not grant citizenship to Chinese residents, but they could be deported. So this um, act restricted Chinese immigration for 60 years, and it was really part of the Chinese must go movement so I thought it was astounding that in 1882, when it was passed, there were 39,500 more or less Chinese in the United States. And by 1887, 10 were allowed in. It tells you how powerful a piece of legislation can be on a population. It was finally repealed in 1974. That's not that long ago. So after it expired, um, they extended it another uh, time with the Geary Act uh, in 1892 by a California congressman, Thomas Geary. And it, uh, the restriction was made permanent in 1902 and it added restrictions that required each Chinese resident to register and obtain a certificate of residence from the IRS, which they had to carry with them. And if they were caught without the certificate, they were sentenced to hard labor and deportation. And bail was only an option if the accused were vouched for by a credible white witness. So think about that, you know, the undocumented, the fear in our immigrant and refugee pop communities I mean, it goes way, way back. It didn't, it's not just happening now. It was always happening. And it really regulated Chinese immigration until the 1920s. Um, but by then things had quieted down and it, it, it was a, a different situation. But the changes in regulation had more to do with quotas and requirements pertaining to national origin. And you will see um, how it has impacted us even to this day uh, with Muslims. So in, uh, under the Gary Act, uh, there was a, an appeal to the Supreme Court, but it was upheld. That was in 1893. And then in 1902, the Chinese immigration was just made permanently illegal. And as I noted earlier, the population in, in the United States sharply declined because nobody could come in. Um, the American experience with Chinese exclusion also su supported uh, later movements against immigration restrictions. So uh, again, undesirable groups were identified as Middle Easterners, Hindu, East Asian, East Indians, 
and of course the Japanese in um, the Immigration Act of 1924. And it wasn't until 1943 that Chinese immigrants and their American-born families could obtain citizenship. So um, I thought it was interesting that uh, World War II and the alliance with China softened some of the anti-Asian uh, feeling, but then it was, of course, exacerbated on the other side because of Japan and, and World War II. So finally, the Magnuson Act in 1943 repealed all the exclusion acts. It finally allowed Chinese immigration. And guess what? 105 Chinese would be allowed in each year. Shocking, <laughs> 105. Um, but the Magnuson Act was good because it gave foreign-born Chinese the right to seek naturalization. And it was really the origin of the national origin system, which uh, you know, has gone through a number of changes and modifications uh, until 1965. So the 1965 Immigration Act opened up immigration from Asian countries, and it finally was extended to all Asian countries, but it did enforce a preferential system for certain professional and technical backgrounds. And we see this now uh, with uh, HB1 visas. But the other un, sort of undocumented, not undocumented, but unknown um, impact was that it fueled the Asian model minority stereotype. And that was used, I think, and as do many uh, experts, uh, as a wedge to uh, pit one uh, community of color against another. So just some additional uh, immigration legislation. I won't uh, focus on that too much because of time. So let's move to Executive Order 9066, March 21st, 1942. President Roosevelt, after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, uh, signed this law and it only took one hour of discussion in the Senate and 30 minutes in the House. This was posted and um, Japanese and people of Japanese in, in ancestry were uh, notified that they needed to uh, collect themselves at gathering points with what they could carry and then they would be moved. So what was the impact? Well, 120,000 Japanese American citizens were rounded up at the time, the, the war was also against Germans and Italians, but none of them were placed in these kinds of camps. And anyone who was at least one 16th Japanese was incarcerated, one 16th Japanese. This included 17,000 children under the age of 10, as well as several thousand elderly and those with disabilities. And um, the impact after World War II ended was unbelievable because even after the Japanese Americans were released, they came back and found that their properties had been seized because of non-payment of taxes, because they were held in the camps three years plus, uh, or people had taken their property, uh, stolen it, and they came back to nothing and they had to start from scratch. But I think the important thing for me was the fact that so many of the Japanese um, incarcerated were citizens. We have to watch for our rights. And this is just such a poignant shot of um, how people had gathered their belongings and were waiting to be sent um, to the camps. So they really only had a couple of days to get ready. Um, you know, at that point, the, many of the Japanese were not allowed to own land or lease land. Uh, so they uh, oftentimes uh, had their children who were at that point citizens, they were able to buy property. But when they were all incarcerated, they, they lost their land. Again, I just want to emphasize 70,000 were American citizens, and many of them had lived in our country for 20 to 40 years. The Japanese Americans, the first generation were the, the Issei, the second generation were the Nisei. I think that's wrong. Uh, <laughs> but um, 
there was fear that the Japanese would spy and create, you know, war uh, within the United States. But no Japanese American citizen or national residing in the United States was ever found guilty of sabotage or espionage. In fact, they were extremely loyal despite the treatment that they received. And um, the 442nd, in case any of you want to look at that, was one of the most highly decorated uh, divisions in World War II. And they died by the thousands in order to prove their loyalty to the United States. They were forced actually to fight while their families were incarcerated in these camps. So I think that's a very powerful statement. I wonder if any of you have had families who uh, may have gone through that. Uh, here are some of the relocation centers. They were usually in very bleak, desolate areas. People lived in barrack type buildings with poor heating. They had, there were public toilets and communal kitchens. They were surrounded by barbed wire. They weren't allowed any free access. And there were soldiers with guns and they did shoot you if you tried to leave. So did any of your families, uh, were any of them in the relocation centers? I know JACL, Japanese American Citizens League, fought for years. Finally, after decades of fighting, uh, reparations were paid. Uh, by then there were not as many people left. And the amount was, I believe, around $20,000 per person, which when you consider what they lost is not very much. Okay. Let's talk about who murdered Vincent Chin. So just imagine Detroit in the 1970s. Uh, it was booming. But then in 1979, the gas prices went up. There was an oil crisis. And the competition from foreign cars was pretty intense. At the time, one out of five auto workers lost their jobs and 30,000 workers were laid off and Japan was blamed. So in 1982, Vincent Chen, who was a 27 year old Chinese American man was at a bachelor party at a bar. And uh, two men, uh, Ronald Evans and Michael Nitz started to harass him. He went outside and thought he was okay, but it turned out they had followed him. They accused him of taking their jobs because they thought he was Japanese and they had a bat and they beat his brains out. He didn't die for a few days, but finally on June 23rd, 1982, he did die. He was a young man with promise. He had worked hard. He was an engineer. And he was supposed to be married in just a couple of days. His dying words were, it's not fair. I really encourage you to do some research on this. Lisa Ling did a segment on this on CNN called The Legacy of Vincent Chen. It's very powerful. And uh, I wanted us to spend some time on it because I think it, again, exemplifies how the law is not applied evenly. So Evans was charged with second degree murder and Nitz with manslaughter. They both confessed to the beating. They didn't deny it. But the judge, Judge Kaufman, allowed plea bargaining and they got three years probation with a $3,000 fine. Neither of these men served any jail time. And the judge said they came from a stable background and weren't capable of the crime. Vincent Shin's mother, Lillian, uh, and um, Mrs. Zia formed uh, an alliance and they, they started fighting back. Uh, they called the Department of Justice in. And finally, after a while, uh, they did hold a trial. It was the first one in US history for an Asian American or AAPI. And um, at first they didn't want to deal with it because they didn't feel it was a civil rights issue since it wasn't about uh, Blacks. Well, after three weeks, Evans was sentenced to 25 years, but he got off due to errors in the evidence. And 
after five years, they were both found not guilty. I think this resonates with me with the Chinatown massacre, how eight people, eight men were convicted, but they all got off. You can see the suffering of the family, Lily Chin and Helen Zia formed the American Citizens for Justice. And the actual Detroit police didn't investigate the murder. They didn't even uh, talk to the witnesses who heard the racial slurs and actually observed uh, the beating. Um, it, the feeling at the time was that, it was our perception of course, but I think it's true, uh, this was okay because uh, Asians had taken uh, American jobs and it wasn't as important because the victim was not white. Silence erases our humanity. That was a placard I saw at one of the Vincent Shin rallies. And uh, this activation was very, very powerful. I, I know for me, it was the first time where I really felt that no matter what I did or how I behaved or how educated I am, the first thing that a lot of people see is that I'm Asian. And the second thing that can happen is I can be killed because I'm Asian. And I, I think for a lot of Asian Americans at the time, it was a big wake up call. One of the wonderful things was the, that we got a lot of support from blacks uh, Jesse Jackson. Uh, and again, this incident is almost never mentioned in our history books, but it was and continues to be seen in the anti-AAPI hate incidences nowadays. So let's get into the meat of historical empathy. Uh, we can go through the definition and then I really would like us to have um, time to really discuss this uh, using examples. So uh, historical empathy is the process of an individual's cognitive and affective engagement with historical figures to better understand and con contextualize their lived experiences, decisions, or actions. Historical empathy helps one to connect with the past and provides tools to better understand how the past has shaped the present. It can inspire you to consider the impact of your choices and to take action against the injustices in your communities. History and empathy are usually referring to developing a level of historical awareness, which allows us to understand why people in the past acted the way they did. When we empathize with others, we identify with them. We vicariously experience their feelings, thoughts, and attitudes. And then um, Drs. Goldman and Ekman did identify three components of empathy as cognitive, emotional, and compassionate. So I was looking at this empathy and I, I realized something as we went through the anti-Asian uh, legislation. And that is that as much as I agree that historical awareness helps us understand why people in the past acted the way they do. Don't think it should be used as a reason to excuse how people behaved. And um, I think that's sometimes uh, a misperception of historical empathy. To really look at empathy as a two-way street and particularly as mental health professionals how history impacts us personally and how history impacts our clients. So um, I don't know, do, do people have any strong feelings about the use of, the, of historical empathy as a concept or construct? I'm kind of using it as a way for us to sort of talk about um, why we need to have historical perspective. So let's apply what we've learned about the history of AAPIs in a historically empathic way. I want you to think about how legislation influences mainstream perception 
of a community or culture? How does racist legislation influence a community's perception of itself? And lastly, how do you think the anti-Asian legislation marginalized AAPIs over time? And, and there are no right or wrong answers, but I really would like you guys to start thinking in these terms because we live in a world where there's a lot of misinformation and lies. And we forget that we're part of a whole culture. And, and there are so many laws being passed. When you think of all the laws that are being passed in many states about who can vote, how you can vote, that's part of this whole uh, anti-hate that, that's been going around for all people of color. So you can see how legislation in this day is trying to change how people can vote, which changes your ability to have a say. That's a very powerful message that's being sent out. And um, the fact that so many people agree with that is what I think is really frightening. So let's continue discussing um, from a different perspective. One that's so alive for all of us now is how does the COVID pandemic illustrate aspects of anti-AAPI racism from a historical perspective? So think about um, our discussions on the legislation and the way that uh, Asians were characterized in those days and see if you can apply it to how it's being used with the COVID. Well, think about the laws. Think about the fact that um, Asians actually are being killed because they're Asian. They're being blamed. 9,000 incidences of anti-AAPI hate since the pandemic started. 9,000. There's a lot of stuff going on. Um, I didn't bring this chart, but there's some charts that show what kind of incidences, um, physical assault, assaults, um, racist comments, but things like being shunned in businesses or picking out Asian businesses and um, going in there and sort of threatening the owners. Um, you know, there's, there are a lot of things going on. So I put together a few possible answers. Um, you know, we look at the history of blaming Asians for economic problems. And I think a lot of the, uh, even before 2020 and 2019, there was a rising uh, surge against Asians uh, because of the Chinese, because of their unfair trade practices and uh, that Asian countries had much cheaper labor, which threatened um, mainstream workers. Uh, so that's one historical blame that keeps coming uh, against Asians. Um, we also have to look at the fact that mainstream looks at Asians as perpetual foreigners, and we're always gonna be seen as outsiders. So, um, you know, we look Asian, because <laughs> we are. Um, but that marks us in a way that is um, very difficult to then, even if we wanted to pass or assimilate. Um, but I think all of us have to look even farther back because the beliefs are really a result of Western European colonialism and the concept of white superiority. So uh, this goes back centuries and centuries. And I didn't have time to, to delve into it, but it's certainly there. Uh, then there is the nativist sentiment, uh, which sees AAPIs as a source of disease. We certainly saw that in the pandemic. Um, you saw it in the language of some of the legislation that we, that we Asians are seen as dirty, unsanitary, uh, and the origin of diseases. That certainly happened with COVID. 
and that then Asians are scapegoated for the pandemic. Um, the use of violence against Asians, that's part of, you know, we saw all the massacres and so forth. We're continuing to see that now. And then the political leadership that fuels the racism, specifically Trump with his remarks about the Chinese flu and so forth. So all of these resonate from the past. They're, you know, what I find so, so many of us, including many communities of color are speaking up against this and that there is now a more um, proactive stance being taken by many of our Asian Americans. We're just, you know, we're just speaking up a lot more and we're not as afraid. But when we talk about working with our clients, we have to also understand that there's a generational and immigration gap. And that's some of the things that we're gonna face as uh, mental health professionals. I wanted to put together a list of how you can help your clients in given the background that we, we now have about AAPI uh, history and anti-AAPI legislation. So as you can see, I believe very firmly that you have to become educated about our history and insist that AAPI history be included in American history. That means that you help your clients by you being educated because then you have more sensitivity and more historical empathy. Um, you also have to take the time to understand the history of your clients, especially our elders and those who are refugees and immigrants. You, I think, can recognize that many of our clients deal with isolation, and it is a good idea to try and get them referred to workshops and trainings to empower them. You can help to create a climate of support. You can do that at an individual level or a group support level. Um, I think uh, if you can get clients to help others, that really helps them in their recovery and it helps their sense of well-being and empowerment. We did that a lot with our Cambodian programs at PAX. And one of the things that was very helpful is to plan activities where clients can interact with other clients, such as a picnic or a cultural outing. So, you know, they're in their little apartments or whatever, but, and then they're in individual therapy, but we have to create situations where they can be with each other. Um, there are a lot of free bystander intervention trainings. I listed uh, the website, I encourage them to take the trainings. I've noticed they're starting to do some of the trainings in different languages, and that would be helpful. Maybe you can get a group of them to take the intervention together. Encourage them to report anti-Asian incidences and crimes if something occurs. And uh, the next one is just, you know, we have to be realistic. Our, our clients don't want to call law enforcement. They have fear of retribution. They're concerned about their immigration status. There are lots of things, and they don't expect results from the government and certainly from their countries of origin. <laughs> it was sometimes the government who was uh, their most feared uh source of retribution, um, but, you know, talk about it. Let them share their feelings about how they feel about law enforcement and the government. Uh, of course, educate your clients about mental health services. Uh, and I, I would say it's very important not to label folks too quickly about mental illness, but to allow them the space and time to understand what is mental health and emotional well-being. Um, be prepared with good referrals, especially legal services. Uh, a lot of our Asian clients want more than just our therapy sessions. And if you're working with parents, please find out if how they're doing and how their children are doing and encourage them, even role model with them ways for them to speak with their children. So those are just some of the ideas I came up with. Okay, so that really brings me to the conclusion of uh, our time together. Uh, if any of you would like to contact me, this is my uh, email address. 
I also want to give a special shout out to the Legal Aid Foundation of Los Angeles who provided a lot of the slides with the photos. They, they did an incredible uh, job and they were very generous in allowing me to use them. And then uh, I also wanted to uh, thank uh, Dr. Umemoto, Dr. Jung and uh, Robin Thomas uh, because they did a panel on conceptual framework to understand the rise of racism on it. It was more global, but um, by listening to their webinar, I really uh, learned a lot, which I've tried to share with you. I want to thank each and every one of you for sticking it out with us. I, I hope this was helpful. I hope it gave you a perspective of uh, our culture, our group, and uh, the importance of being educated about our history.